be at big conferences talking about anti-fraud technology and different algorithms that contribute to the success of the product. And I just kept waiting for people to be like, well, where's your PhD? Sometimes I have to picture it as that little like voice on your shoulder that's trying to be like, you can't do this and like flick them off and be like, well, I'm doing it. So what are you going to do about it? You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews Okome. So let's get started. Huge thanks to Gusto for sponsoring today's episode. Gusto offers modern, easy payroll benefits and HR to small businesses across the country. They were even named Best Online Payroll by PC Mag. And as a Side Hustle Pro listener, you'll get three months free when you run your first payroll. Sign up and give it a try at gusto.com slash SHP. That's gusto.com slash SHP. Hey, hey guys, welcome, welcome back to the show. Today in the guest chair, we have Tanya Sam. Tanya is a tech-savvy investor that has made it her mission to empower the next generation of minority entrepreneurs. As the Director of Partnerships at TechSquare Labs, Tanya has mentored over 60 companies with women and minority founders and helped invest in over 50 companies that have generated a total of over $100 million in revenue. She also co-leads the Ascend 2020 Atlanta program that supports minority and female founders and co-founded Biltex Women, a business accelerator for female entrepreneurs. Prior to joining the technology industry, Tanya served as an oncology nurse practitioner at Northside Hospital, New York Presbyterian Hospital, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and more. She earned a Bachelor of Science in Genetics and Cell Biology from McGill University and a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from the University of Toronto. You may also know Tanya from TV. Tanya appears on the hit Bravo TV show, The Real Housewives of Atlanta. Tanya is a native of Toronto, Canada, and lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her fiancé, Dr. Paul Judge. I really love what Tanya had to share about conquering imposter syndrome when she pivoted to an entirely different industry. Also, she shared about how she navigates the challenging parts of having entrepreneurs reach out to her every day because of her fund and how she ultimately made the decision to be on Real Housewives of Atlanta. So let's get right into it. Welcome to the guest chair, Tanya. Hi, Michaela. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. So first things first, in your own words, want to know a little bit more about you. Um, give us a peek into the life of Tanya. Who are you and what was your first experience with side hustling? Ooh, okay. So life of Tanya. Good question. Um, I mean, I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'll give you the background. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm engaged to my fiance, who's a serial entrepreneur, Paul Judge. Um, we spend our time um, working, building technology companies, investing in technology companies here in Atlanta. Um, we work together. So that means we get to live, love, work and travel together, which is a blessing in my book. Um, from Toronto, Canada, moved here about nine years ago. I went to school to be a nurse and then I sort of segued into this technology world. Um, I love food, fashion, to have fun and 
one life to live YOLO. That's a little, that's Tanya in a nutshell. (laughs) I love it. I love that you, you know, shared a bit of yourself, that well-rounded overview of yourself. And I think that's one of the reasons I gravitated to you. I I was recently watching Real Housewives and, you know, I'm Jamaican. I'm a carnival girl. I went to Trinity Carnival. Right. And I love that you brought that into the show. Like hearing Kess on Real Housewives just gave me so much life. So I love that you share who you are, not afraid to let people know all sides of you. I am really proud of that, I will say. Yeah, like, that was that's going to go on my list for like things I was like, you're proud of. Kiss? Okay. Um, so, yeah. Good job. Now, what was your initial career path before transitioning into tech? Oh, wow. So I come from a family of doctors. Like everyone in my family was a doctor, nurse, et cetera. My dad actually came to Canada on a med school scholarship from Ghana, West Africa in like the fifties. So I grew up in the type of household where you were just expected to be a doctor. Um, so I went to, did my undergrad in genetics and cell biology, started researching after that. And then I kind of decided I didn't want to do med school. So I decided to do a bachelor of nursing degree in nursing and I sort of specialized in oncology. So I graduated and I started working in um, oncology and had some little side hustle nursing jobs there as well and did that for like a decade. I loved it. Yeah. I mean, once a nurse, always a nurse. I loved it. I I miss it, but um, I've just kind of taken the leap to switch into some other things. And aren't we glad that you did? I think it is so important to show people that even after you've spent 10 years in an industry, like you can always reinvent yourself. You can always pivot. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, you are the director of partnerships for Tech Square Labs, in addition to, you know, other endeavors in tech. How did that come about? How did you get involved with Tech Square Labs? And then why the pivot from nursing? Ooh, okay. So we'll back up a little bit. Um, You know, I really feel like, and this is why I love talking about things like this. I grew up with, and especially I think this is attributed to my parents who were immigrant parents, like, and especially as a doctor, like you pick your profession and you die in that profession. And I think that's our, an older generation's mentality because even for me, now that I've switched from nursing to other things, my parents are still like freaked out about it. They're like, well, do you still have your license? (laughs) Like, my parents would be too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I, I really do appreciate how much fear there is for folks who are looking to transition out of the job they have, because it's been ingrained in us from like our parents' generation down. So I was, um, working as a nurse, uh, and I had met my fiance who was a serial entrepreneur at the time. I think he had built about three companies. And I think there's something to be said for entrepreneurs who were just born into it and others who learn it. I am certainly one that learned how to be an entrepreneur. It was not in my nature to take big risks like that. You know, I came from a background such as nursing, that is absolutely life and death. So we don't take a lot of risks, right? he was building a company at the time. I was working as a nurse and, you know, on my days off, he'd be like, can you help me? It's me and my co-founder. There's nobody else. Can you do this? And my nature was to be like, no, I don't know how to do that. I need to go and get a degree in that. He was like, no, you're smart. You'll figure it out. And that has taught me so much about what entrepreneurship is. It's like, you're smart. And if you're passionate about it, you'll really figure it out. So I started working alongside him and his co-founder in that early stage company, doing whatever I could figure out and do. Sometimes it was sales and marketing. Sometimes it was like cold calling people and talking about the product. Um, 
Other times it was operational. You know, I'm not, I wasn't technical and I'm not very technical at the time. So I wasn't doing the programming work, but there's so many other different pieces to building a company where I was able to pitch in and help and like make significant strides in building that company. Um, and so I feel like I just got to learn a lot of it on the job. I love that you mentioned the fact that you you're smart and you can do this because I think the mindset is so huge. It's something that holds a lot of us back because we do have that mentality. Um, we need a degree first. We need a certification yeah. first and we let it hold us back. And I'm not saying there's no value in degrees. However, you are smart and capable of figuring things out. A lot of the people we look up to are just figuring it out. (laughs) So why not us? So did you ever, you know, as you were going through that learning curve, have any of that imposter syndrome or just, you know, once you had that mentality, you just (laughs) forged straight ahead? (laughs) No, I am riddled with imposter syndrome. I really am. Like I definitely suffer from that all the time. I think it gets better with time because, you know, I've been in the game now. I've been working in startups in technology for probably about eight or nine years. So I've, you know, really put my time into the ecosystem here in Atlanta. So it does get better. But initially, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd be like, what am I doing here? I'd be at, you know, big conferences talking about um, anti-fraud technology and different algorithms that contribute to the success of the product. And I just kept waiting for people to be like, well, where's your PhD? Mm. You know, so you just have to like push yourself past it. I sometimes have to picture it as that little like voice on your shoulder that's trying to be like, you can't do this and like flick them off, literally flick them off and be like, well, I'm doing it. So what are you going to do about it? Right, right. I like that. And just so everyone knows, let's talk a little bit about Tech Square Labs, because as I was reading more about this, um, I realized that what you and Paul are doing has been so influential in building up the tech scene in Atlanta. So um, you provide, is it an incubator? Does it provide resources, funding? What is it? We basically started building Tech Square Labs around 2013, 2014. And the Atlanta startup ecosystem there was a bit young, right? It wasn't like the Valley. We have a lot of technical talent here because we've got great institutions like Georgia Tech, Morehouse, um, Georgia State, where we have great computer programming um, students. And we have like, we'd had this history of having like really successful startups. Nothing on the scale of the Valley, but we didn't have a place where we could really build the early stage ecosystem. So where would two entrepreneurs, two people in a laptop who wanted to build a company go to sit and be around other like-minded individuals? So that's really what we wanted to do with Tech Square Labs. We wanted to start a, like a startup co-working space, incubator, and ecosystem to kind of help explode the Atlanta system. Um, so that's what we did. We bought a building and we started filling it with people. Hey, do you need co-working space? Do you want to start an office? Do you want to come to meetups and programs and listen to other fireside chats about extraordinary entrepreneurs and how they did it? And it turns out it worked. People really loved it. People, you know, felt it was very beneficial. And I think that it coincided with a time when startups and tech were really exciting and people just wanted to know more about how to get involved and just being able to create events that people could come to and listen to other people. They were like, Hmm, I can do that. That's inspiring. Hey, I can learn to code here. So it's been a really incredible journey. Was it easy to raise awareness for this space? I mean, everyone was kind of in silos doing their own thing. And now you guys have purchased a building. So, of course, I know that's huge overhead. How did you raise awareness in in addition to talking to people one on one? Was it the Atlanta startup battle that you guys founded that helped to kind of bring bodies into the space? 
I actually think that was instrumental. Um, and so for us, you know, on the other side of Tech Square Labs, we had a venture fund and we were looking to invest in early stage companies, but it was getting the word out there. I will say because Paul had had some success in the technology um, scene here, people kind of were like, hey man, can you help me? So they'd reach out to him. So there was that sort of trickle, I think, but creating the Atlanta startup battle, which was a pitch competition, we offered a hundred thousand dollar cash investment prize into the winning company was huge. Um, there wasn't a lot of competitions where you could get a hundred thousand dollar investment. And then on top of that, we also offered space to companies if they needed to like, uh, have office space mentoring. So people were really excited about it. So our first startup battle, I think we had maybe 300 applicants and we were just amazed. And then we've now done eight of them. We've given away about a million dollars, um, to winners. Wow. A lot of them are minorities. A lot of them are women entrepreneurs. Um, not just in Atlanta, people come from all over. And I think we have about 1200 people attend to watch the pitch competition. And we had over, oh gosh, I think we're at something like 800 applicants this last round. Why do you think it's so important for people to know that you can thrive as an entrepreneur in Atlanta? Because it is still kind of a default for people to think, oh, I need to go out to Silicon Valley. I need to move there to really have success, to gain funding. Why Atlanta and why are you guys so invested in this city? So I'll answer that in the reverse. I feel like with Silicon Valley, you know, 10 years ago, seven years ago, if you were raising money, a lot of times the narrative or answer you would get from VCs out there would be like, move your company out here. And that's why they built up such a strong ecosystem. But that's absolutely what you were going to get. Okay, we might have best, but you know, if we're going to sit on the board and we're going to write you a check, we want your company to be based in San Francisco or you know the Valley. And now it's changed because I feel like investors are realizing there's a lot of positive incentives to building companies. For example, in a place like Atlanta, the burn rate is so much slower. We have all this talent. Um, so you can build really big, scalable companies here. Um, and their investment goes a lot further. And I'm sure the cost of living and everything else helps. Oh, I mean, goodness. we were definitely looking at Atlanta. And if we do make that move one day, we are hitting you up. <laughs> oh, you. And here's the thing. The quality of life here is incredible. Everyone gets here and they're like, we love it. We love the summer. We love that, you know, we can actually have a little bit of space. Right. I've lived all over the world, New York, Toronto, Montreal, like you have a great sized apartment or condo here. Now, let's talk about your transition from New York. Let's go back for a second. Now, yeah. when you decided to get involved and really started immersing yourself in this tech world, did you side hustle? Did you take a sabbatical from nursing? Uh, because I mean, that is a great safety net to have. So how do you how do you finally kind of break the chains and say, I am doing this? So I was definitely moonlighting. I was doing both at once. Initially, I had a part-time job in New York City. Mm -hmm. I had a part-time job here in Atlanta working 12-hour shifts at the hospital. And I was working in um, alongside Paul in building their company. And then I came up with this idea that I wanted to start my own business called Limitless Smart Shot. And Limitless was actually, the idea of it was actually born out of working in healthcare as an RN. We have these busy 12 hour days, but there was nothing that was like an all natural supplement that could actually make me smarter on the job. Similar to how like an athlete takes a Powerade to give them more electrolytes, um, or we take Red Bull to help us party longer. So 
Yeah. I was like, why don't we have that for just regular smart people who need to use their brains? So I decided to formulate and kind of fell back on my science background for this, this beverage called Limitless Smart Shot. It was a dietary supplement to help increase your focus, attention, and memory for your brain. So it was like a brain boost. Um, so I was doing all of them concurrently. I don't even know which one was my side hustle. Oh I was just God. kind of balancing <laughs> them all at the same time. The fact that you had two part-time jobs in different cities is yes. already just blowing my mind. You know, and I was kind of young and crazy. So I, it was very exciting. I'd be like, oh, I got to get on a plate. I got to go here and I got to work and I got to do this. And, you know, nursing is very fast paced. So I love that sort of adrenaline of it. Um, but, you know, it got to the point where I'd be in the med room trying to take a supplier call to formulate my beverage. And there's a code outside. And I was like, I can't physically do this anymore. So I feel like for me, my, I had to decide which of my side hustles I had to let go of. And so I decided to let go of the job in New York first. And then finally I let go of the job in Atlanta and I was focused primarily on building, um, limitless and being sort of helping at pin drop. And then that gave way to me saying, Hey, we're building tech square labs. It was literally building a business from the, uh, a building from the studs up. And I said, okay, I need to focus on these two things. Hey guys, it's Nikayla here with a quick word from our sponsors. If you have a business or you know someone who does, you probably know that small business owners wear a lot of hats. And some of those hats are totally great. But some, like filing taxes and running payroll, for example, they're not so great. That is where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, and HR actually easy for small businesses. Fast, simple payroll processing, benefits, and expert HR support all in one place. Gusto automatically pays and files your federal, state, and local taxes so you don't have to worry about it. Plus, they make it easy to add on health benefits and even 401ks for your team. Those old school clunky payroll providers just weren't built for the way modern small businesses work, but Gusto is. So let them wear one of your many hats. You have better things to do. Side Hustle Pro listeners get three months free when they run their first payroll. Try a demo. See for yourself at gusto.com slash SHP. That's gusto.com slash SHP. This episode is sponsored by Skillshare. The online learning community is offering Side Hustle Pro listeners two months of free premium membership. Explore new skills, deepen existing passions, and get lost in creativity with classes from Skillshare. My number one side hustle advice is to always be a lifelong learner. That means continue learning new ways to grow your business each and every week. For me, that comes through Skillshare. There's so many awesome classes on Skillshare on topics like email marketing, Instagram hacks, setting up your own website, copywriting, and much more. What I like to focus on are classes to fine tune my skills. Most of the classes are under 60 minutes with short lessons to fit any schedule. And I tend to listen to classes on 2x speed because I want to get as many in as possible. I recently took a Skillshare class called Copywriting Tips from Beginner to Advanced and found it so valuable because I'm in a zone right now where I'm laser focused on the copywriting in my Facebook ads, which I know some of you guys are seeing. And Skillshare has been very helpful with that. 
Whatever your business needs, though, you can find a class for it on Skillshare. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro, where you'll get two free months of premium membership. That's two free months of premium membership at Skillshare.com slash Side Hustle Pro. You're someone like myself who values a great quality of life and... (laughs) We like nice things. So this was one of the considerations as I was going from side hustle Mm -hmm. to full time. I wanted to be able to maintain my lifestyle. So as you're giving up these, you know, well-paying jobs, little by little, how did that affect your lifestyle? Did you go through a period where you were living on savings or was the business uh, strong enough that you were starting to earn a paycheck from it? No. At first, I was completely living on savings. Um, I was lucky enough, and this is kind of what you know, informs my decision to start the ambition fund that I had people around me that were willing to invest in my vision for the, for limitless and tech square labs so that that could kind of start as the early seed funding for my businesses. So it came primarily from my savings, primarily from a friends and family round that I was able to raise, but it was hard because I didn't want to eat Raymond noodles anymore. I had done that, (laughs) you know, but, um, I will say this is one of the things that I love about being a nurse. And I hear from a lot of nurses who are like, how do I make this switch? You know, nursing is a great profession because you have all these ability to make overtime. So I had been working my buns off, working all this overtime so I could sort of pad my bank accounts so I could be prepared to kind of make that leap. And, you know, yeah, shout out to nursing because um, my mom is also a nurse. She also, mm-hmm. you know, Jamaican mom has always been like, when it, oh. anytime I had like any kind of lull in my career, she's like, are you sure you don't want to go back to nursing school? I mean, we, they just pay so well. <laughs> I know. And this is the thing, like nurses, like we, we get it. They'd be like, does anyone want to work Christmas? It's triple time. I'm like, I'm there. Merry Christmas. Yeah. I mean, it's it especially, I get it. The Jamaican nurse, Filipino nurses, West Indians, like we run nursing Africans, like we run nursing. (laughs) So how did Limitless go? Did you, are you continuing with Limitless or did you um, ultimately close the business? I ultimately closed it. Um, It was, so basically I ran that for about three and a half to four years. And, you know, it it was one of those things where I feel like I, I made a lot of mistakes in that business that I will admit to that really helped me learn a lot. So for example, when I thought I was launching this company, um, I really thought my target market was going to be startup tech entrepreneurs and like doctors and nurses. It really wasn't. So it ended up being, um, moms, moms loved my product beyond belief. Really? Yeah. <laughs> because entrepreneurs and doctors and nurses, we already figure we're smart. So they didn't really think they needed the brain boost. The people who really wanted the brain boost were moms. They'd had a baby. They were foggy. Their kids were driving them crazy. They couldn't remember where they put their keys, glasses, bottles. And they were like, I need help. (laughs) And so I grew a really successful business, you know, like once I figured out my real vein, marketing to moms and it, uh, it was primarily online, which was really great. Um, and, I ended up selling the assets of that business to another company. It wasn't my, you know, great exit that, you know, I'll dream of forever, but I learned so much in building that business that it was probably one of the most valuable experiences for sure. And I just have to stress people, I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) Thank you for the reminder. And I'm sure that experience has been helpful in 
the support that you give now to minority and female founders. Um, I know you also co-lead the Ascend 2020 Atlanta program. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So a lot of this came out of, you know, my experience as an entrepreneur, being around other entrepreneurs who are trying to find funding and build companies. And we really realized that one of the keys was not just being able to have access to funding, but so that especially, um, I say underrepresented founders because I think that encompasses, you know, a lot of different people, whether they are in the indigenous communities, whether they are black, females, um, LGBTQ, just typically I think it's not your pale male, right? Um, <laughs> but, you know, oftentimes they don't have the friends and family that could provide them with that initial check. But the other thing that I think communities need is the education. Because I think if you don't have the education to build the framework to build a successful company, you're not going to get the investment. So creating um, accelerator and incubator programs like Ascend Atlanta, which provide like the background and the skeleton framework for business education and founders to be successful, I think has been imperative to really growing that um, ecosystem here. So I spend a lot of time on that and it's really like a joy for me to kind of impart those lessons and the, you know, strengths and weaknesses of other local founders who come in to talk to our groups and help them really grow their businesses. How do you identify the founders that you invest in? Um, so a wide range, you know, at Tech Square, I will say a lot of our investments are very broad. You know, we have an investment thesis there that is looking for large scale, scalable technology companies. Um, and so I spent a lot of time previously looking at companies there. In Ascend, we look for companies that are actually in Atlanta because one of our theses is we're trying to build um, minority businesses in Atlanta in the Southeast. With the Ambition Fund, it was something different. And, you know, with the Ambition Fund, it was my goal to empower and ensure that all these underrepresented groups um, have the same level of access and opportunities to thrive and grow their businesses. And I will say for that, I wanted to take a different viewpoint because I'd seen a lot of folks who were building just technology-enabled businesses. But through my experience on Real Housewives of Atlanta, I was kind of exposed to a whole bunch of different types of entrepreneurs that typically in the tech arena um, wouldn't be funded. And they were building incredible businesses, but they might not be, you know, high tech companies. So they had service industries, they were in the hospitality industry, products, consumer product goods. And how could we help those businesses and those entrepreneurs scale their businesses? So that's kind of was my thesis with the Ambition Fund. And because I had access to Real Housewives and, you know, the social media following it had kind of afforded me, um, it was very successful because we launched with our first business battle competitions, similar to the startup battle. It was a $25,000 prize investment and we had over 1,500 applicants. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that was pretty incredible. And I think being able to go after a market of folks who were building businesses across all industries, not just the silo of tech, has been really interesting. Let's break down how funds work a little bit, um, because sometimes I think there's this impression like it's free money or it's just out there and, and they're, you know, people don't expect to see a return on their investment. So let's talk a little bit more about the fund itself. Now, where does the money that you invest in entrepreneurs come from? And then what time frame do you expect to kind of see that ROI? Okay, so great question. So anybody who is raising money as an investment for their company, 
It is absolutely not philanthropy, right? And so this is, I think, the hardest part um, of being an investor is probably saying no to folks. But, you know, it is not about giving away money to help you build a company. Really and truly, the point is I raise money from other folks, such as myself. They could be family offices, friends and family. And they have charged me with the responsibility of putting that money into a business that will ensure that they can get a return on their money. And the returns are not like, a dollar or two and a nice thank you card or a bottle of wine at Christmas. (laughs) It's like they want 10 X of their money back within, you know, uh, an expected timeframe. So the average exit is, you know, probably six. mm, I mean, it's not really the three years. It's usually around seven to 10 years. And so that's why it's very hard for people to fundraise because, You know, when we look at a business, when we look at a company, we are digging very deep into the diligence of your business to understand that we are going to get a big return on our money. I admire people who are starting funds because there is diligence on your part because you know you aren't going to see that return for up to 10 years. Yes. But you are taking a risk and putting your money in a company that you expect to give you a lucrative return. And that, I think, is just so incredible. It's a lane that you really have to be committed to. Yep. So why is it so important to you to help others be successful entrepreneurs? Oh, good question. I mean, for me, more than anything, I feel like that there's been people who have believed in me and helped me to be successful. And I really am passionate about being able to give that back to other folks. Because if it's not me, then who? You know, and especially I think as a woman and uh, an entrepreneur who's kind of gone through the early stages and seen different aspects of it, I think that there's a lot that I can help others to be successful with. And I've just been blessed to create the partnerships in this ecosystem that people are willing to take a bet on me um, to invest their money with me to in turn um, help other entrepreneurs. And, you know, it just, there's also a piece of me that really, bothers me. It really bothers me that if you look at the statistics, over a billion dollars are invested into technology startups every year, but less than 2% of that goes to women and less than 1% of that goes to African-American founders. Like this is a huge problem. And, you know, to me, it's just indicative of the fact that all this talented and diverse entrepreneurs aren't just, aren't getting access to what is typically like the biggest wealth creation engine of the technology industry. Everyone's talking about tech, but if we're not having access to all this capital, like that's a problem. And so being able to help correct that um, means a lot to me. And, you know, one of the things that I, I like the fact that you expanded and broaden the type of companies uh, or at least, you know, ha- have a fund that broadens the type of companies that you can invest in. Because one of the things I found too in creating this podcast is I didn't want it to only be about tech companies in Silicon Valley. Like, There's more than one way to be an entrepreneur. There's more than one type of awesome business that are coming out of our community. And I want to shed light on those things because I'm big on living outside of boxes. And entrepreneurship is the last thing that should be in a box. Like you should understand that there are many different ways to have your own, to start your own business. So thank you for doing that. And another thing I really admire about you is 
you know, I don't know you super well personally, right? But you give off this impression that you are easy to work with, easy to talk to, just this sense of camaraderie and um, congeniality. And I'm sure that is helpful in building relationships. But what's the most challenging part of maintaining a fund? Honestly, for me, and this probably speaks to the very nice comment you just gave me in terms of my personality, (laughs) but saying no, saying no is the hardest Mm. part. Um, and you know, no doesn't always mean no can mean not now come back later, but Mm -hmm. who do, who do you mean? Who are you saying no to like entrepreneurs who, you know, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Entrepreneurs who are like, Hey, can you fund this company? I've got a great idea. Um, can I, you know, have some of your time? I mean, there's a, there's a wide variety, but I think saying no is the hardest. And I'll say a couple of things about that. I think oftentimes, you know, because there's so much buzz, buzz, buzz over, um, being in tech and entrepreneurship, I really think that oftentimes people aren't ready to go and raise money, um, or hit up investors. So typically people will approach me and say, Hey, I've got this great idea. Can you help me? Right. And so there's that spectrum or can you write a check? So I think that sometimes people haven't done the background work to understand like what it takes to get a check from a person. And so when I have to say no, you know, you kind of like are saying, oh, your baby isn't cute. And that's painful for entrepreneurs. (laughs) So I'm very sensitive to that. Um, But at the same time, it is like you say, it is a business and this isn't philanthropy. I do my philanthropy in sort of other areas. So it's tough. It's really tough. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're right. You know, I think sometimes the glossy aspect of it, whether it's from social media or TV shows, pitch competitions like Shark Tank can make it seem like people are ready before they are or like it's easy. Like, hey, I'm going to create this beautiful deck and go out there and ask for money. You know, never mind um, testing if this idea is viable. Never mind trying to get sales, you know, before uh, just going out there with an idea and all of the above. Oh, say that again. That's a huge thing that I tell people. Like the best money you can get as an entrepreneur is customer revenue. And I think, you know, that's something that people don't recognize. Like make money for your company first. And then trust me, the investments will follow. Once you tell me you're like, Hey, I've got all these customers and here's some glowing reviews. The problem is that answer gets people, well, I need money to get it off the ground. And that's where it's such a catch 22 for myself, Mm -hmm. because where do those folks find the money? How do you get it off the ground? But people have done it. And so we're just trying to make it, we're just trying to make success for as many people as possible. Um, as smart as we can. Yes. And so would you recommend like the pitch competition route for people who do need that initial money to get the company off the ground and then just working on continuing to get sales? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll give you the example here of Pindrop Security, which was the company that Paul was building when we first met. It's probably seven years old now. It's probably got a valuation of about 90 million. It's a fraud company. But for the first year, they went around and they were pitching at um, technology picturing it like technology venture showcases. Hey, here's a $50,000 check. Here's a $100,000 check. And that gave them the runway for a good 18 months. And then, you know, they closed their first half a million dollar deal with a big telco. Having that vision and strategy, and I've seen a lot of companies do that where they just get to that. It's really hard to bootstrap. But if you have a product that people want, you go and sell it to them and keep 
gaining that revenue. That is so inspiring. Before we jump into the lightning round, let's take a minute to just talk a little bit more about the Real Housewives of Atlanta. Now, how did that come to be? Because I don't see a lot of tech <laughs> entrepreneurs on reality shows, Tanya. <laughs> so no, how, it's really weird, right? There aren't. How did that come to be? <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I think it's testament to Atlanta. It's like, Atlanta's sort of like a big pond, small pond. So you sort of know people, you sort of know of people. And some of those circles just sort of overlapped um, where people were like, do you know this person? Do you know this person? And then, you know, I became friends with Nini just very randomly. And she was like, oh girl, you, you know, you got to come on this show. And I was like, oh, I don't know. It's so weird. But Atlanta, Housewives of Atlanta has such a huge viewership. People all across the world watch that show. So once I had started moving to Atlanta, I can't tell you how many people would be like, hey girl, do you know the Housewives? Do you know the Housewives? <laughs> and there was some, yeah, what? I mean, in, in, I would go to the, the Valley and the most random, unlikely person would be like, that's my secret favorite show. And you'd be like, what? <laughs> I did feel like, yeah, there aren't a lot of, you know, black strong couples that are working in technology and entrepreneurship represented on that show. And I was like, hmm, I think this is something that people need right. to see. So I can imagine being in your shoes and I, it has to be nerve wracking because you know that you have positive things to put into the world. How do you ensure <laughs> that opportunities like this Support your professional initiatives and don't become like something that just completely derails or just, you know, have people focusing on the wrong things. I mean, you can't. Case in point, <laughs> last week's episode, you absolutely can't. So oh it, my gosh. It, it was totally a risk that I went back and forth on. But, you know, I think it pays off more than anything. And I just have to remind myself, like you remind myself, yourself what your foundation is. I'm fortunate that I really have a strong relationship, you know, um, and family and good friends around me. But then, you know, through the past year, I've received so much outreach and love from fans who will send letters saying, oh, Tanya, I really love you on the show. You know, I'm the only black woman in a tech company in Arkansas. And it's just such a pleasure to see someone like myself on TV. My daughter and I watches it and she now is, has an interest in doing STEM activities because she saw you on TV. And Aww. I cry, like I really cry because I'm like, it is worth it. Okay. You know, so yeah, like there's, it's little things like that because when you think about kids and young people and how we create a generation of kids that want to do different things, that think entrepreneurship is cool in the way that they think basketball players or music videos or actors and actors are cool. Like there was no other way to really portray that in a, you know, a grand scheme type manner. And, you know, I'm just so glad you took that risk because it's hard. I, for one, I'm very private and I just, you know, I just can't imagine making that choice. But at the same time, it's so important that you did. You know, one, I wouldn't have learned about you. I wouldn't have even known about Paul Judge. And I remember reading a Fast Company article and then I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's Tanya's fiance. <laughs> and it's yeah. all like crazy that that's how I know the name. But it is so, for those of us not in Atlanta, we might not be aware of this entire hub and ecosystem and these opportunities that exist, but now you have this larger platform where you're able to share it with people. So kudos to you for taking that risk and doing that. And I think the pros outweigh the cons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, and you just have to be like steadfast and firm and like your right. own truth. And like that part's easy for me. 
Yes. So now it's time to transition into the lightning round. You just answer the very first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Number one, what is a resource that you share with a lot of founders that you invest in that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience? Wine. No, just joking. Just joking. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. That's it. I thought that was going to go somewhere. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it can be online resource or just something helpful that you point them to when they become part of your beta. Um, I would say number one, Slack. I think it is probably one of the best tools for startups or people building companies because it it minimizes the number of emails. It streamlines communication. I just, I think that is huge. Um, and it seems really simple, but I think it's probably one of the best tools I have seen um used in tech right now and MailChimp because MailChimp is just it's also an Atlanta company but anything you're going to do in your business and to grow your business you're going to require um sort of like outreach to customers and I think that's one of the best ways to do it so number 2 what has been one of the most helpful business books that you've read ooh um a good friend of mine so this is this is biased but unbiased Ben Horowitz wrote the hard things about hard things and I think that is one of my favorite business books. Um, but he also just wrote, wrote another one called What You Do Is Who You Are. And I really like this book because it talks about how as a leader and a founder, if you're building culture, you want to build a culture that people gravitate to. And it's really about like who your character is. And I firmly believe that that's how good leaders are made. Mm, thank you. Alrighty. So number three, what is a non-negotiable part of your daily routine? Working out for sure. I really need workouts to keep me like positive and sane. Um, and these are really girly responses. I kind of love makeup because I feel like it plays into my dress for success motto and, you know, a good beat every day. I like, it's like a power pose for me. Yes. (laughs) I hear you with that. I put on my red lips for these interviews. So I... (laughs) I completely hear you. All right. Number four, speaking of your daily routine, what is a personal habit that has helped you significantly as an investor? Um, I think do unto others as you would have others do unto you. I just think that, you know, as an investor, as an advisor, you just want to treat others as you would like to be treated. And sometimes you have to give hard no's, but hard yeses. But I just think that's kind of my motto for how I approach business. And then finally, number five, what is your parting advice for fellow Black women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss, but are worried about losing a steady paycheck? I think you just have to do it. And at the end of the day, I think that this idea of like the fear of failure is like, bullcrap because you're going to fail at some things, but you just have to learn from those mistakes. So don't let the fear of failure hold you back. That is an important reminder. I don't think you can ever hear that enough. So thank you. And now where can people connect with you after this show? Awesome. So I'm super easy. I'm on, you know, social media and Instagram as um, it's Tanya time. Twitter, I think I'm, it's Tanya Sam. And you can find me on my website, www.tanyasam.com or theambitionfund.com. So reach out to me, let me know. Love to hear from people. I will say if I'm inundated with emails, sometimes, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, email me twice. (laughs) That is a good, that should be our tip. Our our lasting 
what should I say? That should be our parting tip for today's episode. Well, let me add to that. I'm going to give the best parting um, tip. So I always tell people, if you are emailing someone, never put in an email, hey, I just wanted to pick your brain. So whenever you're emailing someone cold, put in the intent of your conversation, what you would like from them, and some times that you could perhaps talk or if they're a good, be, be a good fit. Because you know, just sending an open-ended email is never going to get anyone's attention. Yes. Great, great tip. So Tanya, I just want to thank you so much again for being in the guest chair. This was, I really enjoyed this. This was very enjoyable and I'm so glad we got to connect. Oh, thanks, Michaela. What a pleasure. All right. And there you have it, guys. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other side hustlers just like you to find the show. And if you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Side Hustle Pro. Plus, sign up for my six-foot Saturday newsletter at sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter. When you sign up, you will receive weekly nuggets from me, including what I'm up to, personal lessons, and my business tip of the week. Again, that's sidehustlepro.co slash newsletter to sign up. Talk to you soon.